But in reality, um, if you're, if, if we take as a sort of basic definition of transhumanism, the idea that we can and should upgrade our human physiology potentially indefinitely in in, in line with our desires, mm-hmm. then the contraceptive pill is is the first transhumanist technology mm-hmm. because that was it, it, it's a total paradigm shift in what medicine is for because mm-hmm. it it's, it doesn't it doesn't set out to fix something that's wrong with me like a broken arm or you know my, a, a, full, a a kidney that's not working properly mm-hmm. it sets out to break something that's working properly in in accordance with desire Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week it's just me. You know, we figure Nick can get into a lot of trouble when talking about women on the internet, and so we decided to just do this one-on-one. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, He unfortunately got stuck uh, in some intermediary airport uh, somewhere in the country, and so uh, was not able to make it for this taping, even though he really wanted to be here. Apparently, he found some random friends within 30 minutes. Um, it's fascinating how he he manages to do that. Today, we had on uh, a wonderful, wonderful guest, someone I got to know a little bit a few years ago, uh, and who is rarely in the United States, because today we had a uh, a Brit, uh, a British person, uh, someone with an English accent. We had it today, Mary Harrington, who is a self-described reactionary feminist and is a contributing weekly editor at Unheard, which is a fantastic, interesting little publication out of the UK. She was born in the United Kingdom and graduated from Oxford University in 2002, and her work quickly drew attention from the UK's Unheard. She has since appeared in First Things, American Affairs, and the New York Post, The Spectator, The New Statesman, The Times of London, and The Daily Mail. She writes a weekly substack, Reactionary Feminist on Culture and Politics and cyborg era. And we had a conversation that I think goes to so many of the bugaboos that I am interested in these days. You know, when Dr. John Esconis, uh, our very good friend, wrote that piece, Why Conservatism Failed, citing the material implications of technology and what it means for society, that really has kicked off a new wave of discourse on the right of center for, you know, maybe ideas aren't all that. And as you guys know, uh, I've constantly been ranting about how the marketplace of ideas was basically invented to sell magazines in the 1960s, and there's much more fundamental forces at work in the world that decide the contours of civilization and why it ends up the way it does. Uh, Mary is uh, a very, very sophisticated uh, commentator and reader on this. This is not one of those episodes that I'm sure you guys see around uh, the conservative movement of just, you know, a female commentator coming on and being like trans bad and, you know, uh, just having kind of very milk toast, superficial commentary. She is a, a real incisive thinker um, and we don't agree on everything. Uh, I, I, for one, see a probably a, a larger place for a more vitalistic mindset in American civilization. I'm probably more of a technological progressive than she is in certain ways, but I think as a corrective to some of the errors of our time, she is is very, very spot on. Um, we had a wonderful time listening to her. Be sure to buy the book. Uh, I really mean it. Um, one of our team members bought another copy just before this uh, because we want to support what she's doing. Uh, and be sure to listen all the way to the end uh, because it's certainly a fantastic, fantastic episode. We'll go now to Mary Harrington. Mary, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
we're always curious what the guest's background uh, is and what brought them to both the views and the uh, professional life that they lead today. I think yours is particularly interesting. Uh, tell us the tale. How does one become a reactionary feminist? Uh, very, it, it takes a while, or at least it took me a while. Yeah. Uh, it was a very roundabout route um, in that I was an early adopter, I suppose, of what, what now gets called woke, although it, doesn't really, it wasn't really called anything when I, when, when I was doing it. Um, but I, I, having been, having been raised in a fairly recognisably classical education, um, I went off to university where I encountered critical theory for the first time. And being a nerd, I, I kind of took, I took it all seriously. I mean, it, it had a huge impact on me. Um, and entirely upended a lot of the things which I'd believed up and up to that point. And I, I did my best to to take its to take its ideas seriously, particularly the the, the critique of power, um, the the aversion to hierarchy. Um, the the commitment to dismantling um, power and hierarchy as uh, sis- baked in systems of oppression, you know, which are which are kind of structurally built into um, the 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 symbolic order as well as the political order, and these these being interwoven in infinitely complex ways, which just which reverberate throughout throughout life and politics and culture. And if you take those ideas seriously, you have to oppose pretty much everything. In, you know you can't and you can't really commit to anything and I, I I mean with hindsight I don't really know whether this was just a way of theorizing just how I was anyway or whether it was it, it was the theories that were doing it to me I don't think it really matters but mm-hmm. in any case this was my approach to life um, as a young adult after I left university um, I, I set about trying to trying to live the dream you know in the, in the sincere belief that this was this was the only ethical way to be um, in practice that means fairly unstable home situ- like domestic household situations it means it makes it difficult to commit to relationships you know in a partnership formation sense it makes it difficult to commit to jobs you know, I live very hand to mouth I mean I was uh, you know work wise I, I think I, I wanted to be a writer um, I, re- I wrote unreadable novels I curated art immersive art events I um, you know, drifted in and out of intentional communes. I went on oh. protests. I did, I, you know, I, I, I went all the way, all the way down the rabbit hole. Um, and it's really hard. People have asked me, so what changed? And it's really hard to put my finger on any one thing. It just became, I, I, I just started over time gradually to get a sense of diminishing returns and also of loneliness and also of a longing for, a longing for someone, I guess. Um and I, but I think the main precipitate, like what really precipitated a major, a major change in my outlook, was that um, I, I founded a startup with some friends when I was in my mid to late twenties. Um, we we did okay. I mean, it was a this was the Web two point revolution, yeah. and it was also peak Blairism. I don't know. I don't know if that will mean anything to your to your viewers here in America, but I, I guess it's sort of Clinton Clinton esque. Right. You know, the the third way, the belief that you know we can get filthy stinking rich and save the world. Uh-huh. You know that the the high you know the the apex point of double liberalism before the before the Great Crash happened, um, and the. The Web 2.0 phenomenon, um, the, the the beginnings of social media, I suppose we think about it now, was it was a, it, it was a time of huge optimism. People genuinely believed that this this new t- these new technologies would be democratizing. They'd flatten all of the. I mean, it spoke to me because it was all about it was all about de disintermediating, and it was all about flattening hierarchies, and it was all about allowing allowing new social formations to emerge organically, um, rather than being rather than being imposed from the top down. So so it spoke to where I was politically and emotionally anyway, and it seemed to me that we. Could use these technologies to 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 turn 
the the world that I longed to have into a reality. I mean, with hindsight, that's not really where we've ended up with social media since. Mm. You know, and I've <laughs> I've had a certain a great deal more to say about that. But that but that was that was where I was at the time. You know, the 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 here comes everybody was a was a book that everyone read. You know, Clay Shirky, I think that was. There's this idea that you know previously culture and politics had been gatekept by a tiny minority and now all of a sudden everything was going to be democratized and it would be wonderful. Um, yeah, there, were, there was a whole, a whole bunch of books and theories and startups and experiments that were done on the basis that disintermediating and digitizing and using platforms to, to create new opportunities for people to have a bash at things in a sort of hybrid professional amateur way would would have immense positive benefits and there were there were lots of there were lots of idealistic kind of public private crossover ventures you know social enterprises i suppose mm-hmm. um that that really glommed onto these ideas and and set about trying to use tech to 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 do to make the world a better place and and it was all it was all very very genuine and it was all very idealistic um and people people also believed that you know we could hopefully make a decent living doing it as well so it it was it really was the kind of the 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 optimistic flowering of the of the third way moment peak blairism do do you think there was anything uniquely english about how this manifested in the uk definitely um, or definitely you know how how do you how did the phenomenon vary when it came to what was going on here in the us uh well i mean i I wasn't I wasn't so connected to the Silicon Valley thing. I, I think I, I I hadn't I had yet to visit California at that point, or at least I mean I think my only experience of California up to that point had been Burning Man, which isn't really representative. Or it might be depending on what you do. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it depends how you, depends how you look at it. Yeah. Um, but I mean it was it was it was maybe maybe a little bit more subdued than the the extreme extremely libertarian extremely. Like, I mean, every, everything in California is more intense mm-hmm. than than however it manifests elsewhere, and there was and there was just there was just less the, the scale was smaller and there was less money involved, mm-hmm. and then that always that, that affects um, how you approach things. I mean, so so there were resonances, but but yeah, it was it was different, um, mm-hmm. and every I mean everything in California everything in America is always that, that bit more extra. That's just yeah, <laughs> it's just always more extra. Well, and specifically. Again, when it comes to the latest fad within the woke stuff, you know, specifically the, the transgender thing, it, it seems like the UK has simultaneously completely jumped the shark on free speech because it never had anything resembling a First Amendment in the same way as the United States does. And so it's further along in some ways, but there seems to be something close to a mainstream political constituency uh, that has coalesced against the trans thing as well in a way that doesn't feel as common in the United States. I mean, uh, uh, do, do you think uh, how, how do you think about the uniformity of, of further or less far along the UK is than the United States when it comes to this stuff? My theory, my 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 read of the differences between how those phenomena are playing out in Britain and America. I mean, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit mm-hmm. here because I was I was trying to explain peak Blairism and how yeah. I fell off the progress wagon. Yeah. Um, but but I guess this is part of it's kind of part of that story as mm-hmm. well. It's just a, we're, we're zooming ahead. I mean, I think the 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 gender the gender ideology phenomenon in America versus in Britain mm-hmm. they're they're different for very socially and culturally specific reasons mm-hmm. um I, there are there was there are social or social there are for institutional reasons essentially mm-hmm. there are in the the 
A crucial factor is the different institutional incentives of the British versus the American healthcare system. Mm. Like the, the the perverse incentives are almost diametrically opposite mm-hmm. between the British and the American system. I mean, there are there are pros and cons to both, and I don't really I don't really have a view mm-hmm. on you know the, I don't think there is a one true healthcare system that that fits everybody. But the you know the the National Health Service for all of its flaws. Um, has some has some drag built into it on wildly experimental um, therapies mm-hmm. because taxpayers are, are forking out for it, and so like the public in general has skin in the game where it comes to um, you know saying saying yes to to wildly experimental treatments, um, and that that's not the case in America, and there are pros and cons to that because obviously you know if you if you if you find a wildly exp- an experimental expensive treatment that works. Um, then you know having a system which supports the delivery of that subject finding an insurer who will pay for it is great because it means you'll get better from cancer whereas under, whereas in, in, on the NHS maybe you'd die so so in you know where it comes to curing cancer you know America's probably mm-hmm. in a better position but where it comes to but the the downside of that is that you you also have a system where if you can find an insurer to pay for cutting healthy bits off your daughter because she has a mental illness then that's what's going to happen, and it's going to be much easier to get that over the line in America than it is in England. So, I mean, there are so some of it really is just you know cultural differences at the level of uh, institutional mm-hmm. structure. Um, you know, other factors which have contributed are the the parenting website Mumsnet, which is has been a, a principal vector for radicalising a lot of normie mums, and also a different history of trade union activism, and also a more a more robust and well networked community of radical feminists. I mean, radical feminism amongst American conservatives means something quite different to what it what it means in Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, by radical feminists, they tend to mean extreme feminists, which mm-hmm. isn't really. I mean, it's a it's a specific body of theory within within the wider body of feminist political theory, um, which you know it, it it sort of emerges. It's kind of broadly Marxist in its you know its analysis of you know women as a sex class. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it, it borrows. It, it borrows heavily from Marxism in the sense of, you know, viewing viewing the the, the challenges faced, you know, the the negotiation between men and women as as, as drawing the analogy of class politics. Um. So so that 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 and that and that body of that body of campaigning is, is sort of institutionally fairly well established and you know has has a bunch of organising bodies and you know, well well networked communities and and you bring those things together the perverse incentives within the NHS and. And and the, a certain amount of institutional just you know muscle memory within trade unionism plus Momsnet plus the radical feminists and and that's all converged over a period of I think pr- pretty much ten years um, to, into into a fairly well by no means ideologically homogenous you know there's there's plenty of plenty of internal conflict mm-hmm. over what he, over over the metaphysics of what what's going on but at a at, at the ground level at the campaigning level um, the 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 stance is coherent enough that it's, uh, they've been able to mobilise and move the needle. Very so, interesting. I mean, in, t- in terms of in terms of how I got to where I got to, um, I fell off the wagon when it came to uh, where, where it came to believing in double liberalism. Um, when the great crash happened and the startup fell apart, and it was my fault that the startup fell apart because I was just impossible to work with. Um, and and I just lost I lost my best friend and I lost my purpose in life and I lost my idealism, and I spent seven years or so just reading. Reading everything, I sort of, and I lost my, I lost my faith in the third way, um, and it's, it's difficult to explain why. That, that's just how it fell out, and the up, the upshot of that was that I spent, I spent the next seven years sort of angrily surfing the internet, reading anything which wasn't, which wasn't Cameroonism, um, <laughs> and there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot out there at the time. You know, mm. the, the sort of dissident internet as it exists now, it, it existed only in very, very, very 
tiny pockets. Yeah. And there was nobody really writing coherently outside the the sort of Blair Clinton perspective. There was hardly anybody. And I, I just tracked I I just wanted to find somebody who was who was looking at the world differently. Um so I I, I just went looking for went looking for alternative perspectives and and asking questions about about the the views which I'd absorbed and um trying to figure out if in fact everything which I previously believed was not true or only some of it. And I came to the conclusion eventually that under some of it wasn't true and some of it is still true. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time I came out the other side of that, I was married. I no longer lived in London. Um, I was not long after that. I had a kid that probably nailed that. That, that was the final nail in the coffin where it came to really believing in the liberal emancipatory version of feminism full stop. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had to ask myself, you know, do I? Is it possible to be, be a feminist if you don't believe in progress? And I guess the book is the the result of trying to answer that question. One of the core tenets of Blair Clinton liberalism um, is sort of limiting the the window of what is allowed to be even considered political in the first place. And yes. they do this with all sorts of issues, um, and they certainly do it with technology, right? Like you think about what the mainstream uh, uh, sort of center of gravity in terms of social attitudes towards technology was, especially in the 2010s. It was like you know, it's like Reddit slash I love science. You know, it's just it's it's just this kind of like completely sycophantic appreciation of anything that our our technological overlords bring to us. But you have a more circumspect attitude towards techno- uh, what technology does, and and specifically how it's how it's changed the dynamics for men for women and and the relationships therein. What's What's the big picture idea there? What's the macro thesis? So, I mean, I, I guess we need a part one and a part two sure. on this. Now, part one of the thesis is that feminism, as we understand it, is not evidence of progress as such. I mean, this was this was part one of how I came to rationalize still wanting to be a feminist despite not believing in progress. And you think, well, the, in fact, you know, what we think of as the women's the women's movement is not it's not evidence of progress. It's women's aggregate response to industrialization. Because industri- the industrial revolution changed family life. It didn't just it didn't just make things more abundant and easier to buy. Mm. It radically changed how families organised themselves. And whereas previously men and women had worked together within the primary economic unit for most people had been a household, um, and politics was ordered in that way. In that you know the the, the political unit was understood to be the household. Mm-hmm. Um, That's and, where economics comes from. Right. Exactly. From the oikos. Exactly. Mm. The idea of the household economy and men and women work together, and their 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 tasks might have been different, but they they were all understood as contributing to a productive household, you know, which might include processing raw materials into goods for the family. It might artisan work, the care of children. There was there wasn't really any meaningful sense that these things were dis, were disaggregated, and and most of them didn't involve a wage. Mm-hmm. Um, and what changed with industrialization was that a huge amount of that of the material work left the home. Mm-hmm. And in the book, I've taken the example of textile making um, as having been some, something which for 20,000 years prior to industrialization was women's work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and there are good reasons for this. Although I found you know, uh, historians have theorized that textile making has historically been women's work because it, you can raise a loom off the ground if you're weaving by hand. So, so your baby won't come along and eat it. Um, you know, you can, you can, it, it's relatively easy to interrupt if you have to, if you have to go do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's social, um, so if you're if you're tied to a relatively small environment, you can do it in company, and so you're not lonely and miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's easy to combine with with other tasks with 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 having 
little children underfoot. Mm. Um, but what happens, you know, but if, then if you think about what happens with industrialization, the spinning jenny comes along, assorted other enormous, dangerous, expensive machines, which, are, which operate in centralized locations, which mm. might be a long way from your house. Mm-hmm. So if you want to carry on being involved in textile making, all of a sudden you have choices. You have, you have to make difficult decisions, which you didn't have to make before. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do with the baby? You know, say say you have a breastfed baby. Can you can you take can you take your toddler with you to to a factory? I wouldn't. I don't recommend it. Right. And so and so depending on depending on their social class, under those circumstances, women women went in different directions. So I mean, there was a there's a so there's a whole working class feminist body of activism which was centered around trying to address the difficulties faced by working class women who had to go and work in the factories mm. and and were, were were leaving their children in the most appalling you know drugging their babies so they could so they could go and work because mm. their choice it was either that or starve you know this is not a and and so the and or who were who were physically who were physically injured or physically disadvantaged mm. by by how arduous the work was relative to men so there's a there's a body of activism which emerges in all to 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 address the physical disparities faced by men and women working under under these new industrial conditions mm-hmm. um, and then on the other hand you've got what what no longer reads as feminism because we're out there we, we've gone through another looking glass since um, but, but a whole a whole other body of what to me reads as straightforwardly as feminism which is the ag- the aggregate response by those women who opted out of the workplace because they could because they could afford to um, and who retreated into the now private home um, which and became which became a, a locus of respite from from market society, mm-hmm. um, and and this is it's a huge body of writing and a huge body of creative work that now gets feminist historiographers sometimes call this dismissively the cult of domesticity, mm-hmm. but really what it is it's 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 the it's the response of women who who've withdrawn from being economically active mm-hmm. because it's either that or, or your baby gets mangled in the spinning jenny mm-hmm. um, but who still but who still think what they're doing is important and they want to make the case for that mm-hmm. and they're doing so in the in the teeth of a new economic order which in which they're radically disempowered mm-hmm. relative to their their agrarian sisters mm-hmm. their foremothers I suppose I should say mm-hmm. because I mean all of a sudden they're reliant on their husbands mm-hmm. for for subsistence in a way which which uh, an equal part an equal economic participant in a productive household it just wasn't it wasn't like that mm. quite um, and so and so women are saying well actually what we're doing is important you know the moral education of children is important a, a space of respite from the the rigors of economic competition and in, in the market society is important I don't think they would have put it like that but that's essentially the message mm-hmm. of the cult of domesticity and and you know women's work matters and to me this reads straightforwardly as feminism even if from the from the perspective of second wave critiques of the, the so-called cult of domesticity. Mm-hmm. It reads as propaganda for the for the patriarchy and for the oppression of women as mm-hmm. second-class citizens within a radically disempowered private sphere. Um, so this is th- th- this is kind of the backdrop. So so and really these this is th- this is this is one of the poles of the original women's movement. You know, the, as or rather with the women's movement as response to the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. And but then against this this feminism of care, the feminist the, the feminism of domesticity mm-hmm. and of defending. The, the importance of women um, within within this emerging industrial order. You also have those women who are saying, "Well, hang on a minute. This this still doesn't work for everybody, because this this only works if your husband likes you and is and, and is willing to do his bit. What happens if he doesn't? You know, and because they've they've in, uh, at this point, women have inherited a whole set of a whole legal and um, cultural architecture from a time when. Um, where, where, the, where the the political and economic balance of power was quite different, mm-hmm. um, and and in effect they're radically disempowered relative to re- relative to the agrarian mm-hmm. um, social order, and so 
in in they, they can't vote they can't own property they can't work or it's it's frowned upon to work it's it's socially it's 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 low status socially mm-hmm. to earn your own money and under those circumstances um if you if you were married to if you were married to a, to a husband who was irresponsible or an alcoholic or violent or neglectful or abusive mm-hmm. i mean you you have a problem you know, what do you do and so and so you think this is why something like prohibition comes about absolutely the the mm-hmm. the, the temperance movement is straightforwardly a feminist movement Hundred percent designed to restrain the worst impulses of men who yes. would if you read, cause that social absolutely. If you if you down. read the writings of temper, the temperance activists were were women were heavily represented amongst mm-hmm. temperance activists, and it was it was overwhelmingly a movement um, oriented towards protecting women's interests mm-hmm. in a in in in, in circumstances where mm-hmm. other, otherwise they could be they they could suffer a great deal and have very little redress mm-hmm. and very little leverage in mm-hmm. order yeah to 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 improve their situation mm-hmm. it's very very difficult to get divorced um so under those circumstances the, you, then you also start to see you you also start to see women saying well uh, th- this isn't good enough you know we need we need political agency on the same terms as men yeah you know, we need to be able to vote we need to be able to own, prop- own property we need to be able to work and of course i mean and this is where the class asymmetry begins to creep in of course because working under these circumstances really means working if you're if you're middle class and can do a desk job mm-hmm. um because work you know if you do manual labor you know there are the the the, the physical disparities between men, men and women are such that you can't um you can't as easily make the case for men and women for demanding equal treatment mm-hmm. between men and women and there are some there are some really interesting historic conflicts within feminism over oh, particularly over w- whether or not workplace regulations should recognize sex difference or obliterate sex difference mm-hmm. that are that are straightforwardly class conflicts between between women who do manual labor and women who do intellectual labor mm-hmm. um so, but but this this really is the germ of the feminism of freedom, which you see in the writings of Harriet Taylor Mill, who was um, very very. Yeah, I mean, she she was the second, first or second wife, uh, the wife of John John Stuart Mill, mm-hmm. um, who who I'm sure you're familiar with, of course, um, and who who heavily influenced Mill's work on 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 the on the the issues faced by women. I mean, some some now argue that she basically wrote it. In any <laughs> case, in any case, I mean, who knows? Who knows? But in any case, they they work very closely together. And and her her case was straightforwardly that you know women women must be afforded in every in every way the same opportunities as men. And from from a middle class perspective, that that seemed like an obviously just and obviously appropriate case to make. Um, and and this the, this is the beginning of what I what I see as the feminism of freedom. And both sides, as as I've tried to explain here, have some have some justification. Mm-hmm. You know, both both of them have a case to make, um, and 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 both are united in accepting that men and women are to to some extent different. You know, and and you know, women's reproductive role is different to that of men, mm-hmm. and and doing and and between them, they, there's a back and forth between the questions of freedom and the questions of care, and the 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 aggregate effort is to try and. It, Within a recognition that that men and women are physically different, mm-hmm. to to make the case for women's w- w- women's equal access to the goods of modernity, mm-hmm. um, in, and and trying to balance the interests of men and women. And my argument is that this this came to that th- this reached a crunch point in the middle of the twentieth century, and that we've we're, we're we're now in a different era, really a post-industrial era that I think of as the cyborg era, um, in which the feminism of freedom is the only one that really has any sway at all. And so, uh, what's what's interesting about this argument, in particular, and I think it's it's largely true, is that it it goes against the kind of typical conservative cope about 
how you know all this stuff comes out of ideas you know mm -hmm. it's like oh some some nerds in a grad school department decided that that women must be in charge and and therefore you have feminism and all of its right. attendant consequences whereas it seems like these ideological forums existed to capture a set of interests that emerge out of the consequences of technology yes i mean phyllis schlafly who yeah. is by no means a lib and by no means a creature of ideas, you know, made the point some time ago mm -hmm. that you know, women were emancipated not by feminism but by the washing machine. Mm -hmm. And I, I, bluntly, I think she was she wasn't wrong. Mm -hmm. And so the the distinct stages here, I guess, would be the commodification of labor per se caused by the industrial revolution, yep. where it's it's no longer a subsistence farm yep. economy, but but people are going out of the home to earn yep. dollars that are then spent on items inside the home. Mm -hmm. Okay, so people are no longer producing the goods they consume on a daily basis. Then the second stage would be the attenuating effects on the value of labor by the advent of machinery um, and, and, and what that does to uh, change the dynamics of, um, uh, of, of, of what individual human labor is worth. And then you add into the fact that um, women have these physical differences with men. And, and so you get the issues that come out of there. And, and now we have we have digital life. Um, and I think there, there's other inflection points in between, like the creation of, of certain biomedical tools like the pill and such. And so I, I guess what, what are some of the core technological innovations that you think play an outsized role in determining the mechanics of gender today? I think the central, the central technological transformation is the arrival of contraception. I think it's woefully underpriced just how radical a transformation that was. I mean, I've I've argued I've argued on a, on a few occasions that the the contraceptive pill was the first transhumanist technology, mm -hmm. and that in fact I mean, today you know people there's a there's been a lot of chat about transhumanism recently, mm -hmm. and people think of you know yeah, us I mean, humans merging with machines or you know giving giving ourselves robot arms or yeah. grafting tentacles onto ourselves onto our faces or something unhinged like that. But yeah. in reality, um, if you're if if we take as a sort of basic Basic definition of transhumanism: the idea that we can and should upgrade our human physiology potentially indefinitely in in, in line with our desires. Mm -hmm. Then the contraceptive pill is is the first transhumanist technology mm -hmm. because that was it, it, it's a total paradigm shift in what medicine is for because mm -hmm. it, it's it doesn't it doesn't set out to fix something that's wrong with me like a broken arm or you know my, a, a, full, a, a kidney that's not working properly. Mm -hmm. It sets out to break something that's working properly in in accordance with desire. That's a fascinating line. Um, wow. So, it's, so, so the pill is the first transhumanist technology, and yeah. the, I remember I had a I had a debate with a, a prominent um, writer on transhumanism, yeah. a pro transhumanist yeah. writer, a, a very fascinating woman called Elise Bowen, who 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 writes in her book Future Superhuman, which I recommend yeah. if anybody is interested in uh, as a, a swift rundown of where we are on transhumanism. Mm -hmm. um, she writes that female transhumanists are not very common, and I, I dissented. I said, um, on the contrary, the reason female transhumanists don't seem very common is because there are almost no female non-transhumanists mm -hmm. it's it's that they're so common they just don't register as such every woman who every woman who's on the pill is effectively a transhumanist well in the most salient vector of transhumanism for women was already invented and institutionalized across society i mean right. if there was there was a singular defining characteristic of women in any civilization it's their ability to Bear and rear children. I mean that that is the core engine of, 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 of human reproduction. And so, 
well, it's done. It's in 1960s, we right. got it. Um, and, Job done. We, yeah. we are 50 years into the transhumanist era. Yeah. I mean, elsewhere I've characterized this as bio-libertarian, mm-hmm. which is perhaps, perhaps a more useful way of thinking about it than transhumanist, mm-hmm. which just sort of conjures mm-hmm. up sci-fi imagery. Mm-hmm. But if, if, if we think about the, the, the idea of bio, a, a libertarianism mm-hmm. of the body mm-hmm. that says we, we, can do, we can do as we please with our own, our mm-hmm. own physiology. Um, and and, and, and I've, I've, I've set out to show that um, what began with a libertarianism, libertarianism of the body for women um, is now it, it's now inextricably intertwined with the, uh, the idea of with, with, with what, what, what we understand feminism to be, mm-hmm. which is to say, I mean, in order in, under the biolibertarian model or the cyborg model of feminism, um, it's the, the idea that I should be eliminated, I should be limited in any meaningful way by my mm-hmm. body, including by my normative reproductive physiology, mm-hmm. is is considered oppressive. Mm-hmm. You know, I should be entitled to interrupt my normal physiology mm-hmm. to you know th- theoretically to to infinity mm-hmm. in order in order to self actualize in any mm-hmm. way in, in any way I see fit. Mm-hmm. And that begins with feminism, but but that's really only the inception point. Mm-hmm. So what begins with feminism then legitimizes you know an, an efflorescence of efforts mm-hmm. to to transcend our physical limitations mm-hmm. you know which is it, it's it's centered so far on on efforts to transcend the limitations of reproductive physiology mm-hmm. but I, I i see that really as just the starting point and i mean it's very easy you know conservatives are very fond of getting angry about transgender politics mm-hmm. but really i see i see the the people the people who embrace transgender identities are doing so for the most part because they're suffering and they believe that this will this will aid mm-hmm. aid them you know transcending their physical limitations yeah. will will give them the, some, the, the, some kind the pill of pill was much more affirmatively transhumanist than the transgender it was. movement is it was yeah. i mean but but the, the, there's a genuine belief there yeah. that you know if i can only remodel my body in, in line with my desires then yeah. then my my unhappiness will go away yeah. and you know it's and the, there's a there's a deep tragedy, and I think I think the right could do with being a great deal more compassionate about what's happening there than you know, particularly with young people mm-hmm. who 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 suffer a lot. I think, yeah. um, but but in my view, um, they the these like the transgender ideology is serving mostly as a sort of ideological wedge for a much broader project mm-hmm. of deregulating human nature, deregulating the Imago Dei, which mm-hmm. still hold, it still wields a, a great deal of mm-hmm. sort of residual cultural cachet. The one piece of this that that I don't have a lot of insight on is is what was the sort of social conception of the idea of contraception before the existence of the pill. Um, I mean, it was obviously this like sudden titanic change in in American society, but I, I just have no clarity on, on what the before was like. How did people talk about the idea of contraception before the pill? Well, it, it depends which era you're pointing at. I mean, women have always sought to manage their fertility. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, a practical necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, childbearing is arduous. Women mm-hmm. have always sought to to mm-hmm. manage their fertility to a greater or lesser mm-hmm. degree. Um, the the origins of the of the pro birth control movement are straightforwardly eugenicist. Mm-hmm. I mean, the progressives and pro- progressives were openly eugenicist, mm-hmm. as you know, it, it, as in general, mm-hmm. until relatively recently. Um, and in figures such as Mary Stopes and Margaret Sanger in the in the United States were very open mm-hmm. about about their their desire to to propagate birth control as a means of um, breeding mm-hmm. breeding out de- what they considered to be defective members of the human race. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, so the early history of contraception is straightforwardly eugenicist, um, and the and particularly the history of the of the abortion movement mm-hmm. was straightforwardly eugenicist. But and it didn't gain traction mm-hmm. until the until the eugenicists were able to hitch their wagon to the women's movement, mm-hmm. at which point it stopped being about stamping out. So stamping out the disabled or you know the the, the le- people with learning difficulties mm-hmm. and and became and became about women's emancipation mm-hmm. and so do you think that h- how much of this again it, w- with the thesis being that ideology follows material reality how much of the idea that childbirth is something that you can be emancipated on uh, emancipated from followed the sort of hundred x ease of implementing that that the pill created. Yeah, I think it, I mean it seems seems difficult to difficult to picture. Mm-hmm. Um it, I I struggle to imagine anybody taking seriously the idea that you know motherhood was something you could emancipate yourself from mm-hmm. or not without not without some difficulty or uh, or not without some a measure of self-discipline anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean just sort of you know taking a detour back to the middle ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, one interesting factoid that I stumbled across a little while ago was the the fact that a preponderance of the women who were who took holy orders in the Middle Ages were upper middle class. They were aristocrats <laughs> or they were upper middle class. And I, I can't prove it because I'm not a medievalist and I don't but my hunch is that most of these were basically blue stockings who just on balance decided they, they if, if it was a straight choice between the life of the mind and being a mum, which it kind of was. Yeah. If you got married then you know you were you were being a mum. Mm-hmm. Um and and who who just who just didn't you know, they 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 were like, I, I just want to be left alone so I can read books or press press flowers or you know yeah. make music or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so they took holy orders. Yeah. Um, What's the term blue stocking? I, I, oh, I'm sorry, that's a British term. <laughs> uh, the the the, the intellectuals. Um, I see. You know, yeah, nerds. It's a it's a polite way of saying female nerd that comes from the Bloomsbury group. Yeah. Well, again, I, that's a. I I love stuff like that because I I think so so much of um. You know, one way you can analyze religion, uh, um, especially kind of well-developed and hierarchical religions, is, is through the the lens of social technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, what do you, what do you do with your intellectual women? Uh, it's right. like okay, right. you know, here you go. <laughs> I, mean, I, I like reading. Yeah. I like reading. If had I been born in thirteen hundred, mm-hmm. I probably would have taken holy orders. Yeah. Um, you know, if I'd been born in a middle-class household, mm-hmm. you know, I'd probably have, have, have opted to go and join a convent so that I could be left in peace to read. You know, as it is, I'm blessed to be able to enjoy a life of the mind and also a family mm-hmm. life, um, because the technological and the wider, wider social and cultural and technological mm-hmm. environment has changed in order to make that possible. Mm-hmm. But had I been born in a time where it was a straight choice, I probably would have gone for the convent. Yeah, I so, don't. Please, please don't say that to my. Don't, don't ever say that <laughs> to my daughter. Um, yeah, we're not live, right? Um, so, okay, uh, the pill gets invented. That was 50 years ago, 60 mm. years ago. What's changed since? Well, I mean, where if if the pill was the first transhumanist moment, we're we're considerably further down the same path mm. since, um, and I think probably the, the the salient the salient pattern to follow the, the 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 line to follow through this is is what what the pill does in in the sense that if you if you use a technology to escape what was previously just a natural understood as a given. Um, you know, use technology to bust through a given. You know, I mean, you, we could take the example of the car. You mm-hmm. know, pre, prior to that, there were there were what what we might have thought of as natural limits on how fast a human could go. Right. And the car came along and bust through that, and you yeah. know, a, whole, a whole bunch of stuff followed from that. Mm-hmm. Marshall McLuhan is is great on this, the extending powers of technology. But what but what happens when you when you escape, use tech to escape a given, is is invariably that you know as as the social 
the, the, the social structures that previously managed that fall away, the market moves in. Because it, you, you, and so you get a dividend of freedom, um, which some people get to enjoy, and then you also get you also get the and, and with that you get you, you get a whole load of new ways of buying and selling stuff. Yeah. So freedom and trade are two sides of the same coin, and, and you can't have one notwithstanding well, you know, a whole bunch of utopians who believed otherwise over the history of modernity. Mm -hmm. It's not true to it's not possible to have one without the other, mm -hmm. and this is really what happened with the contraceptive pill. Um, you know, the at a stroke, um, reliable contraception privatized sexuality, which had previously been inescapably um, socially managed because society, you know, pre pre reliable birth control, you know, the the wider community really does have a stake in what I do and with who. Mm -hmm. Because uh, children end up being the responsibility right, of the entire right, community. Exactly. You know, my my you know, it's it a baby is not just my problem. It's also my extended mm -hmm. family's problem. Or yeah. yeah. The, the the idea, you know, what do you care about what people do in the privacy of their own bedroom exactly. actually became operable as exactly. a, a governing tenant, which exactly. in which case it just it's, wasn't beforehand. Yeah, I mean, if I'd, if I'd said, you know, my, my body is my own business and it's nobody else's in, you know, the 1750s, people would have just laughed in my face because yeah. it's obviously not true. Yeah, your three kids off to the right. side would have been like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, and it only becomes thinkable for the first time that, that sexuality is mm. a private matter mm. with the arrival of reliable contraception. Mm. Um, and, and but. But the thing about privatizing something is that if I own it, I can do what I want with it. Mm -hmm. And so what, what led to the dividend of freedom was the, the great many middle class women such as me who went off to universities and joined professional and, and, and began to, to join the professional world and, and flourished in, in a great many ways, all of which are good. Mm -hmm. And for the avoidance of doubt, I'm not suggesting that women should all go back to the kitchen because as if that's even mm -hmm. possible, um, let alone desirable. I, on that thread, like, what, I mean, how do you think of... How do you think of like pastiche trad in modern life? I mean, it's like, do, do you think the it's people not trad who, enough? That's the problem. Well, with it. I mean, do you think people who pine for like trying to pantomime a pre-modern lifestyle? I mean, I, I, I think there's they, a lot of different things people. going on there. One of the things which is going on there is straightforward status signaling. You know? <laughs> I can, and therefore right. I'm right. I'm, I mean, let, let, let's face it: being a stay-at-home mum is a privilege mm -hmm. now. And I only realized this when I when I got to the point where my, my peers who I my NCT um, that all the mums who'd had babies around the same time as I had my baby started going back to work. And many of them expressed a really deep grief mm -hmm. at having to be separated from their babies and real ambivalence. Um, you know, it, it's a difficult moment. And, and this is remember, this is in Britain where that happens at, at one year old mm -hmm. rather than two weeks, as mm -hmm. is often the case in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and I sucked at every profession that I, I attempted prior mm. to having a child and there was nothing I really wanted to go back to. Mm. So it wasn't a dilemma for me, mm. but I was also in a position where actually I did have the option mm. because we, we were able to manage on my husband's income. And at that point, I realized that actually having the choice um, is a, it, it's, you know, this wasn't me being oppressed yeah. by the patriarchy. This was actually the fact that I wanted to be with my child yeah. and I had the option to do it. And the fact that we could afford to do that was not, you know, it was very much the opposite yeah. of oppression. Well, and, and the, the fascinating thing there is that there's actually sort of a, a, a complete inverted misalignment of, of incentive and desire in this modern status quo, right? Because it, the, the women who are most likely to, in previous eras, have been the blue stockings, uh, take holy orders, upper middle class, uh, wealthier people are the ones who have the most uh, potential in terms of just material resources yep. to fruitfully raise children. And the women who otherwise would be more than happy to be homemakers and, and have the desire to have children are the ones least capable of doing so because yep. they are so reliant on the workforce. And, 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 it's, and, and, there's, and there's more in yeah. the sense that it's, 
it's typically you know, the, the women who have the mic and the women who are closest to the levers of power and the women who are closest to being able to shape policy are typically those women who are who have careers mm-hmm. rather than jobs. Um, and, I, and I guess this, I, I was unusual in that sense because, mm-hmm. I, as, I, as I said, I was terrible at every job I did before mm-hmm. I accidentally became a writer at the age of 40. <laughs> it was really, really, like literally I get fired mm-hmm. every two years. Yeah. I, was, I was awful at all of them. And so I, I, I had jobs. Um, and you know that's that's relatively unusual for a middle class Oxford graduate, mm-hmm. um, and 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 they, none of them were jobs that I really wanted to go back to. Mm-hmm. So I have I have perhaps more insight into what it's like having to go back to work after a baby if you have a job rather than a career. Yeah. And I can see why if you have a career that you that you enjoy that you, that's well paid mm-hmm. and that you train for for a long time that gives you status and social mm-hmm. connections and yada yada yada. Um, I can see it would be a genuinely difficult decision, mm-hmm. you know, how to balance that with the the love that you feel. Mm-hmm. for your child um if you're a woman with a career mm-hmm. um but i have but i but i also look at the the I, I look at the women with jobs and i think there's a lot of them and and they're not really getting much of a say you know because they just you know because they have jobs rather than careers they're not getting anywhere near the mic and mm-hmm. they're not getting in certainly not getting anywhere near the levers of policy mm-hmm. and so absolutely without fail you know what tends to happen you know at the at the level of policy setting and institution building and, and rolling out actual concrete things mm-hmm. that might tilt the the wider social fabric mm-hmm. in one direction or another is that you see you you see being presented as feminist and rolled mm-hmm. out as feminist policies which aid the women with careers rather than the women with jobs mm-hmm. and 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 then the women with jobs have to live with them um, even if in practice they're being emancipated, quote unquote, from their children in order to go and put packets through a scanner or, mm-hmm. or take phone calls in a call center, which mm-hmm. is just, I don't know, it's not something I would have wanted to do over and above spending time with my baby. So what does the internet do? <laughs> <laughs> Where do we start? What does the internet do? And I, and I think it's worth breaking. I mean, we can use the sort of uh, canned web one, one web two, mm. web three. I mean, starting the early 90s. I mean, with the first advent of digital technology, what did it start to do to to all of these existing social trends? Well, it, it, it's kind of, it, it's an accelerant on, it, 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 I'll just stop there. It's an accelerant. Mm-hmm. An accelerant how? Um, well, if, if we drill down a little bit into... Um, but actually, let, let, let's let's go back to talking about biolibertarianism. Mm. You know, the the transhumanist moment, mm. which I guess is the kind of governing governing theme, and and really the and is the the, the moral and political order that marches now under the banner of feminism, mm. which I've which I've characterised as progress in mm. the general sense, and which I think feminism should be opposed to. Mm-hmm. That's why I titled the book "Feminism Against Progress." Yeah, because in my view, to be a feminist is to be opposed to transhumanism mm-hmm. and to be a, and. and and as such, to be opposed to progress. Mm-hmm. So, if we if we look at what the, what digital technology does to the, the the transhumanist moment, it's it works as an accelerant, and and it does that print right, at the at the cultural level. It does it by entrenching and normalizing and propagating the belief that who we are who we are is separate from our our bodies. Mm-hmm. That it's it's possible you know, who, who I am as an individual and my embodied. My, and my body mm-hmm. can be thought of as two different things, and I mean this is this is this is I think the the central reason why transgender politics mm-hmm. has such a sharp um, age sort of scissura in it, mm-hmm. and broadly speaking, anybody under the age of thirty is instinctively in favour mm-hmm. of trans of gender ideology, and and anybody certainly anybody over forty has questions, mm-hmm. and fundamentally that's because if you're over forty, you can probably remember the before times. Whereas if you're, if you're certainly, if you're, I mean, if you're under twenty, 
You know, the idea that there was ever a world without internet is just un incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. And if you've grown up interacting with your friends in Minecraft or, or whatever, I, I, I mean, I, I'm old. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to reference. You know, the the various um, various online spaces where where I might imagine kids to social. But but the like, if you've if you've grown up inhabiting those spaces, it's much easier to imagine that who I am is is something something that isn't necessarily connected to my body but because I have a social persona which mm -hmm. is not connected to my body yeah. and if you're if you're accustomed to the idea that you can reskin that persona's avatar then I can see how people might want to bring that out into the offline space as well as as, as the kids call it these days meat space mm -hmm. um, and and imagine that you know if I can reskin my digital avatar why should I not reskin my my meat avatar mm -hmm. um, it, it, it starts to look intuitively like an issue mm -hmm. of basic justice. That I should be, I should be able to shape myself as I see fit because my me mm. is is, is self-evidently um, not. It's it's not the same thing. So so recombining a couple of different elements of, of things you said, what the advent of something called digital life that was, you know, birthed as an entire new domain of life and uh, where because it's in the world of bits, you can easily swap out bits and pieces of your identity, and those capabilities only get faster and more intense over time as as uh, the web uh, increased in technological sophistication and the time spent um, in digital life only increases as time goes on as well you know you've spent 70 percent of your day on the internet where you can be anything you want of course it makes all the sense in the world that in meat space people would believe the same yeah 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 and I, I guess I saw the beginnings of that you know back in my Back in my experimental twenties, mm -hmm. um, in that um, I I hung out one one of the spaces where I hung out was there was in sort of incipient genderqueer community mm -hmm. that was that partly had its life online. And this was what what was so interesting. It, it had a there was a very lively um, daily community interaction mm -hmm. via a, a message board that no longer exists, mm -hmm. but everybody congregated there, and there was a little corner of it which was all just our our little clique. Mm -hmm. And people created elaborate personae for themselves mm -hmm. in this digital space, and there were long running jokes and elaborate stories. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was a, it was it was an online community mm -hmm. of of a kind which there are now many 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 of mm -hmm. them. But that was ours, and that was, and and within that community, I mean, it was it was all all women. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them have now have since transitioned, but they were all women who were you know ambivalent about their gender presentation um, and all of whom created identities for themselves which were at odds with their physicality you mm -hmm. know and many of them adopted boy male names and male pronouns mm -hmm. and and then we brought and then but then there were also regular offline meetups mm -hmm. where we'd all get together and we'd use with and, and we'd continue we, we, we'd continue the subculture which mostly ex existed in the digital mm -hmm. space and everyone politely looked past um, all the ways that the physical reality mm -hmm. didn't quite match up to the fantasy mm -hmm. to the to the digital one. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, over time, um, over time, a great many of the individuals within that community mm -hmm. embraced um, gender, you know, a transgender identity mm -hmm. in, in, in offline life mm -hmm. as well. And most of them have since transitioned. Mm -hmm. But this, this was the beginning. This was the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, all the butch lesbians who I know from that time are pretty much, pretty much to a woman and mm -hmm. are men or now, now present as men. Mm. For a while, I was like, "Was it something I said?" But, I, <laughs> but but I don't think it was. I don't. It was just. It was just that moment. Yeah. It was. It was that moment where digital subcultures were beginning to feel like something mm. we could actually realize in in the real world, mm -hmm. where where the internet, where where we we stopped going from a, a material first culture. We mm. we stopped being a, a 
a, a stuff first culture and became a digital first culture. Yeah. I mean, I think probably probably the the point where that went absolutely universal was the pandemic. But there was there was this strange interregnum because, between because people's entire social life. Right. Online. Right. I mean, we're we're so much further down that right. rabbit hole now. But uh, but uh, but to my eye. Um, it started happening in a big way in the mid to late noughties, and it really it really caught fire with the smart with the arrival of the smartphone, mm -hmm. um, and I, and and, re and that's the point where where cross cross sex identification starts to skyrocket for mm -hmm. young people, and it's also the point where where mm -hmm. mental health for young people starts to tank because even as you had to go about doing the things in your day that required getting out of the house, you could still be part of your digital life. Yes. Through yes. your yes. hand and the phone you yep. hold in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, we're, we're, I'm I'm ambivalent about all of this stuff because I love the internet. Yeah. I mean, I've been extremely online, like ridiculously, absurdly yeah. online for like twenty years now. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, if I if I critique some of the directions that that's taking taking us in, it's not from a position of. I mean, you know, sometimes I joke about wanting to unplug the internet, but that's not going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, <laughs> unless you know where the plug is, plug mm -hmm. is. I don't know where the plug is. Um. But 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 I and and I think you know the the internet is not without a great many blessings you mm -hmm. know as as is always the way it brings a dividend of freedom and then also it'll and also be you know, a horrible new efflorescence of trade mm -hmm. I mean that's, <laughs> it's just another 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 one of those pictures mm -hmm. and and I think there are ways that it can we can use we can use new technologies more intentionally mm -hmm. um, in order to offset some of the mm -hmm. some some of the negative externalities and what, what do you think the um, impacts of other forms of reproductive technology have been let's say the the uh pro-fertility aspects um you know culturally the meme in the united states of freezing your eggs and ivf and these other pieces of technology i think carry a very very significant place in the mind of especially professional women absolutely um what do you think that place is? Well, I mean, we can like if we if we use the same heuristic of freedom and trade, mm -hmm. you know, you you see you see that you know for for a subset of of individuals who take who take advantage of those technologies, which are again straightforwardly transhumanist technologies, mm -hmm. um, some of there's a great dividend of freedom for some people. Mm -hmm. I mean, single sex couples can can now have a baby mm -hmm. as a result of you know, in vitro fertilization or you know being able to or the, there existing a market in mm -hmm. gametes, for mm -hmm. example, that didn't used to be the case. So mm -hmm. there's a dividend of freedom mm -hmm. there's also a dividend of there's also a new efflorescence of trade mm -hmm. which is essentially a trade in human body parts and mm -hmm. in human in human physical functions mm -hmm. um and and the, and where you have trade you have class asymmetries and you have you have asymmetries of power and leverage and where you have those asymmetries as we've seen from the beginning of the industrial era with the enclosure acts um you have you, you have you have exploitation and you have coercion and you have and you you have winners and losers fundamentally. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for freedom and trade. Um, and I think I think what we're missing in the conversation is a class politics mm -hmm. of biotech, a class politics of reprotech. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's the, you know conservatives are asleep at the wheel when it comes to when it comes to the class politics of biotech mm -hmm. because because what's what's radically missing from the picture is is any any coherent uh, mobilization of the people whose bodies and whose and whose body parts mm -hmm. are, are are being turned into products or workplaces or sometimes even just raw material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the the different elements of it are, are interesting, right? Because the pill has basically been utterly commodified. I mean, mm -hmm. you can get it for free essentially, right. or maybe twenty bucks a month. Um, you know, surrogacy is is a different, interesting cat. Um, I think that that one that there is potential there, but but IVF. I mean, the push. Uh, from from the the transhumanists um, on that is just 
let's rapidly technologically innovate and make it as cheap as possible. And mm -hmm. I'm sure they could get it to be pretty cheap, all things considered. And then if they couldn't get it all the way down, they'll make some sort of state subsidy program in order to um, you know, allow people to do it. There are already states in the United States when the Dobbs decision came down on abortion, um, where there were constitutional amendments being passed in certain blue states that protected um, certain women's sexual reproductive rights. And in all of them, they always made sure to include sort of these abstract references to affirmative fertility care as well, mm -hmm. that, that, that people have not only a right to their own body, but a right to have a kid when mm -hmm. they want, which will naturally, uh, you know, with how the left thinks about rights in general, lead to, therefore, the state must subsidize IVF right. for right, right, right. an infertile couple. So like, maybe um, there, there's a class politics angle there, and, and there certainly, I think, would be on the surrogacy side of things, but I'm just, I'm less confident that that might actually happen. Um, what um what do you think the sort of cycle has been on on all of this stuff? I mean the 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 kind of the lady who was on the cover of Bloomberg advertising egg freezing in the 2010s, she tried to have kids and it didn't work. Uh, do you do, do you think we've come past the apogee on um you know uh, my body's a temple I can do whatever I want or, or are we still yet to see it? I don't know. I mean, it's, we might see a critical mass of uh, women who who were led up the garden path and believed it was possible, and mm -hmm. then it turned out not to be. Mm -hmm. And enough of those might might turn around and become, you know, radical pronatalists. Mm -hmm. You know, in a sort of don't don't do what I did, kids, mm -hmm. kind of a way. Mm -hmm. It could happen. I mean, you know, it's 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 easy to to extrapolate mm -hmm. sort of doom laden scenarios mm -hmm. out into infinity, mm -hmm. um, and then something something comes along and surprises you. I think uh, I try and be optimistic. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I, I think we're we're beginning to see a backswing on some front, on some facets of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I see I see young women, even from outside religious or conservative backgrounds, pushing back against the contraceptive pill, mm -hmm. and a, a, a very interesting upsurge of interest in in more in in methods methods of managing fertility, which are more more in tune, mm -hmm. more. More, more aligned with with normal female physiology mm -hmm. rather than oriented towards just you know hitting it with a hammer until until it does what you want. Yeah. Um. So so that's so that's one one aspect. But but in the meantime, the institutional power is with the other side, and the and the the, the lure of being able to transcend all of our limits is immensely powerful. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I I have I have I have a great deal of faith in human nature to just refuse to be abolished. Mm -hmm. You know, to my eye, every time we set about trying to abolish human nature, it's just it's just returned mm -hmm. in in a perverse form, reordered to the market as mm -hmm. a set of supply and demand problems. Mm -hmm. And I think eventually people people will begin to notice that in fact we can't we can't transcend our you know the, the transhumanist project of turning us into something better than mm -hmm. we are is is not actually delivering. All it's doing is creating a few supermen and and a lot of and the rest of us are, are consigned to just parts in parts in a, in a in a spare parts repository and actually we don't like this so, so the attenuation of, of sort of natural feminine life through reproductive technology it feels fairly obvious um, because of because of how unique women are and their ability to have children and the second you create a piece of technology that that alters that it's it's, it's sort of plain and, and obvious what I'm curious as to your take on is what did the last 50 to 100 years of technological change do to men that might be correspondingly or maybe even more so uh, 
dramatic what, what what's happened on the other side of the gender divide hmm. um i'm hesitant to make any sort of grand unifying theories mm -hmm. about this because i'm not a guy mm -hmm. so i can only i can only really comment as an outsider mm -hmm. i mean it's the the numbers are in and you know it's i'm hardly the first person to notice that men's mental health on aggregate seems to be declining, mm -hmm. um, that men are by far at the greatest risk of suicide, men are becoming more lonely. You know, the, the, the men are not okay. Mm -hmm. um, and and sometimes th this is sometimes expressed in in ways which are not, not very not very pleasant to hear um, from from my side of the equation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it comes out in some some fairly sort of violent forms of misogyny and mm -hmm. internet subcultures, which are not very pleasant to listen to. <laughs> but um, my sense is that fundamentally, you know, the, the, it's coming from a place of pain. You know, the men are not okay. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's. I'm. I'm. I'm hesitant again to to say, oh, it's all just the fault of feminism, because I mean that's that's a fairly standard kind of manosphere talking point, just mm -hmm. to blame blame it all on feminism. I think that's a mistake, because if if you accept my sort of basic thesis that feminism is itself an effect of industrialization, I think we could probably apply something of a, a similar lens to, to where men find themselves mm -hmm. today. I mean, there's a significant extent to which the particularly the post-war technologies. And actually, yeah, but post-war technologies have radically demasculinized men or they've re they've they've radically reduced the 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 number of places within the, within modern cultures where greater physical strength you know elevated levels of aggression you know all this all the sort of traditionally stereotypically masculine attributes are desirable or, or even necessary i mean <laughs> you know i mean at, at a sort of metaphorical level you could even say that the arrival of the atom bomb um has 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 radically castrated men as a as an archetype mm -hmm. because because even warfare has mm -hmm. been what warfare has been left um, you, you you can't just send a few guys to war anymore because you yeah. might you might risk a you, you might risk a nuclear meltdown right um, <laughs> so there's a sense in which to put it crudely the atom bomb cucked everybody mm -hmm. well, and then you have the the facsimile which is video games right right you can get you right. can scratch the same itch. Right, exactly. So, so instead of instead of going out and sort of hitting each other with spears or clubs or whatever, except along the China-India border, <laughs> you know, which, which I find actually fascinating as a response to the way the atom bomb cucked everybody. Well, uh, they, they they they've just agreed. They have a sort of gentleman's agreement going on there that they're only allowed to fight if they use clubs. Yeah. That seems to be how it's working. Uh, are you a fan of the Dune series at all? I I'm not very familiar with it to be okay. honest. Well, there's a, it's it's fascinating, and this is not an original point I've made. Um, I, I believe this was actually originally conceived by one bronze age pervert but the uh, uh there's a piece of technology in dune first of all the, the you know atomic weapons are largely banned um uh in in that civilization um and it's it's extremely frowned upon they're basically never used and then there's a piece of technology that sort of uh makes it so that you know kind of a shot at a distance uh doesn't really work you kind of need to any weapon meant to strike a person has to arrive uh, at their at their body uh fairly slowly they have this kind of shielding technology and so it, it sort of recreates uh through that piece of technology the warrior archetype again mm. like you need the warrior mm -hmm. again because you know getting them with a sword is basically yeah. the only way you can actually kill them the bullets from a distance you know the the nerd with a sniper rifle or your you know feminist drone strike operator doesn't really exist as an archetype anymore and i just you know that i i just find that as a, a fascinating you know edit one thing about civilization <laughs> and what what changes but yeah i mean the, the the advent of video games is you know it's like okay you know a bunch of things happen in modern life that take away uh the 
natural ability for men to sort of go to war normally and then and then you have what is a fairly convincing facsimile in mm. the form of video games in the same way that pornography is to, to sexual encounters um and so you have those twin forces you add on the pr proliferation of narcotics and you get a pretty bad situation for right. men right, right right yeah then and this is yeah I, I, you, you've summed it up uh, the the one the one point you know related to this that i've touched on in the book um in the in the chapter on on men and uh, where where have all the good men mm. gone is is the the case that I set out to make for reinstating single sex spaces across the board, and where I've I've argued that again I mean it's difficult to prove causality but my hunch is that the the well-meaning call that came from the women's movement to make most of public life uh, co-ed, you know, in order to give women access to equal mm. opportunities has you know it's it's delivered benefits for those at the top who want who want a shot at the networking mm -hmm. opportunities afforded by mm -hmm. by private clubs and so on mm -hmm. um, but further down the food chain it's led to an attrition of all male spaces of a kind which were deeply emotionally and culturally necessary mm -hmm. for a great many a, a great many much mm -hmm. more ordinary men mm -hmm. and that this has had this has contributed to male loneliness and yeah male male psychic distress mm -hmm. um, and furthermore is contributing to a, a, a serious loss, which is which is very much against women's interests as well as men's interests, in 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 the opportunity for young men to be formed in a beneficial way by older men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it, it's clear to me, and I think it's it should be clear to anybody from mm -hmm. observation that that men are not formed by women. That just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, men will men will try and live up to women's ideals, mm -hmm. but men men are basically men are formed by other men. Mm -hmm. And and if those opportunities for real life, you know, affectionate male mentorship don't exist. Then you'll, you'll either then you'll end up with these toxic internet mm. mentorships as well, and figures like Andrew Tate will be the only ones out there. You mm. know, at best you'll get a Jordan Peterson, and, and, if, and if you're not lucky, you'll end up with an Andrew Tate, mm -hmm. who's who 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 come who who mixes you know self improvement mantras with with the most virulent misogyny, and then and then you wonder you. And, and then you wonder why men and women are not are not able really to find to find mm. any common ground at all. Mm -hmm. And you think actually, and, and my my thesis is that perhaps if if we were willing to step back and and just 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 let men be a little bit more, mm -hmm. um, we might we might ease some of we, we, mm -hmm. so some of that might ease and 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 there might be more space for men mm -hmm. to form one another in ways which which are really to the good of everybody. So, taking present technological progress uh, as a given and assuming something resembling our current status quo, which is always a bad thing to assume. Paint a picture for me for what a, a much healthier social compact between men and women and, and men unto themselves and women unto themselves would look like after 300 years of rapid technological change. In the book, I have swerved policy suggestions. Um, oh, I'm not talking about policy. No, no. I'm just talking. Paint a picture. What does okay. it look like? What so, does that world look like? So I've I've swerved policy because I, I, it's too culturally specific, and mm -hmm. I wanted to speak to a broader mm -hmm. Anglophone audience than would be workable mm -hmm. if I was making concrete policy mm -hmm. suggestions. But at the level, at the interpersonal level, um, along with letting men be, I've suggested that I've, I've made the feminist case against birth control mm -hmm. as, a, as a central act of political resistance mm -hmm. to the transhumanist order. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if there's going to be a pushback against mm -hmm. that, it, it has to be led by women mm -hmm. um, as, as the first step mm -hmm. really in, 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 in withdrawing mm -hmm. our labor 
from the sexual industrial complex mm -hmm. and it has to begin it has to begin with women and it has to begin with being willing to put the danger back into sex mm -hmm. and the consequentiality back into sex mm -hmm. and with that inevitably comes um a, a greater emphasis on on long-term partnerships rather uh, as opposed to hookup culture mm -hmm. and and a willingness a, a willingness to commit not just not not just kind of until until I decide otherwise, mm -hmm. as in the the self expressive marriage, which mm -hmm. has become the norm, mm -hmm. with when when both men and women are at work and you know provide for themselves as equal individuals, mm -hmm. um, but something very much more covenantal, mm -hmm. um, and that's understood as the foundation for for a life together rather mm -hmm. than as the capstone of a of a life led individually. Mm -hmm. So 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 not not the not the mid thirties marriage when you've when you've both nailed your careers and you fancy a little bit more companionship, mm -hmm. but the but a, a covenantal marriage, um, a, with with the aim of creating something a little bit more like a productive household, mm -hmm. where it, it's not a case of my my career and your career and mm -hmm. a sort of tit for tat, um, or or consuming the other person as a vector for self actualization, mm -hmm. but something something more like you know, un, uh, building a legacy together and building building, yeah, building a life in common. And and frankly, that makes the most sense when it's ordered towards children. Mm -hmm. And it's and it and it remains indisputably the best environment within which to raise children. Mm -hmm. um, so 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 those and and and, I, and those those three pieces work together. A, a, a greater respect for single sex sociality as a good in its own right for mm -hmm. any reason that that social groups should care to want it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's it, it makes very little sense to me to ask for men's help in defending women's sports or prisons from from incursion by male male women, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, if we're not if we're not also willing to accept that men may sometimes just want to hang out with other men just because they like it, mm -hmm. uh, I think it, it, I, I think we need we, we need to accept you know we we need, we need to make make space for the possibility that that men male sociality and women's so, and female sociality are sometimes different mm -hmm. and 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 stop pushing back and, mm -hmm. and and forcing everybody into a kind of unisex model of sociality. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so 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 a sex realism really across the board mm -hmm. and. We're all all ordered towards trying to rebuild some form of some a form of so, of solidarity, mm -hmm. which is able to survive uh, a political order. I, I mean, I think we're you know I, I don't just not believe in progress for from a feminist point of view. I don't. I, I think we're past peak progress generally at a macro level. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you know the. I don't believe we can have infinite growth on a finite planet. Mm -hmm. You know, this is generally an environmentalist point mm -hmm. rather than a rather than a feminist mm -hmm. one. But it seems clear to me that eventually we're going to run, start running out of stuff. Mm -hmm. And at that point, probably the ball is the balloon is going to come down. Mm -hmm. um, and I would I would prefer to see us building building social forms which are which are resilient mm -hmm. even to more difficult times. Mm -hmm. Um, rather than social forms which are predicated on the never-ending sort of line go up yeah. and sort of never-ending growth of abundance. That seems imprudent to me. As a sort of final question, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, I think you'll have a lot of sort of normie critiques of, of what you're laying out from from the left, but I, I do think that there is a an even more, you call it right-wing critique that that might come forward on this, which is actually everything you're saying is true that that women are historically the the archetypal force um maintaining social order and 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 should be the ones pushing back against things like transhumanism and, and infinite growth and that that is bad that 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 the the female archetype in civilization is to anchor towards sort of stability and status quo and that it is the male archetype that wants to Go further, go beyond, be a spacefaring civilization, open the frontier, etc. Um, 
how should that tendency be balanced? Um, it, it isn't at least some of what ails us in modern civilization that we are are too limited in our um, horizons for what's possible for human civilization. So if I understand you right, you're, you're suggesting that in fact what we need is to stop arguing back and forth about marriage and go colonize Mars and then everything will just fall back into place. I mean, I'm, I'm, is that is that what you're saying? No, no, not at all. I mean, it's it's basically I, I'm curious, you know, wh where is the role of of those more adventurous tendencies um, that are naturally disruptive um, that clearly have played a, a, an enormous role in, and a positive one in human history on the long term? But in short and medium terms, look um, look much more disruptive and, and unhealthy. <laughs> I guess so. From from within that frame, I, mm. I, I could I could ask you right back. I'm a woman. Why would you be asking me this? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, do Do you think that we live in too feminized a society? <laughs> if 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 this is so, it wasn't it wasn't feminists that did it. It mm. was the technology. I mean, I always think the 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 masculinists out there, of which there are many, in, mm. in assorted internet subcultures. Um, who are serious about wanting to bring back the traditional stereotypes of masculinity? They ought to be going balls out for degrowth. Mm -hmm. They ought to be going out for total civilizational, you know, and unplug the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, burn burn all the technology, mm -hmm. nuke all the data centers. Mm -hmm. You know, bring it all crashing down, mm -hmm. and, and let's let's go back to warrior. Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to go back to warrior bands, that's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and and if you're if you're just sat in the if you're sat in a basement posting about mm -hmm. it, then you're not putting your money where your mm -hmm. mouth is. I think that general argument that those folks would have is that we're in this weird interstitial point where where technology has a sort of maximally limiting force on 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 individual will, um, at least in that in that kind of masculine tendency, um, and that you know the two solutions are go go way back or or go way forward. Um, and I don't know. I mean, uh, it, it it might be the case, um, but. We also have to create a civilization that's capable of surviving, and I think a lot of the ideas you lay out in the book are are very helpful in making that happen. Yeah, I guess um, you, it's probably fair to point out that you, the world, the world, and you know, transformation has all has often been brought by adventurous, you know, ad adventurous outliers mm -hmm. who who do something wild and different, and mm -hmm. are, are sometimes terrible people with mm -hmm. it, um, but. Somebody is still got to grow the food. Mm -hmm. Somebody is still got to have the babies, mm -hmm. and there's, there still needs to be a home to come back. To. I mean, Odysseus mm -hmm. goes on his whole. He goes on his Odyssey, mm -hmm. right? But the, but but then he eventually he goes home, mm -hmm. and there is a home there. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that you could just go on an infinite Odyssey and there's no mm -hmm. home to go back to. Well, I don't know. To, to me, certainly to me, it doesn't sound very nice. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe that it has more appeal to some people than others, but to me, to me, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound very nice. Mary, where can people keep up with everything that you're writing and saying <laughs> on this and uh, many other controversial issues? <laughs> Most of my work is at Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. Mm -hmm. It's a British digital magazine where mm -hmm. I'm a, I am write a weekly column. Mm -hmm. uh, I, write, I write a Substack. I'm looking forward to visiting feminist. the old Queen Street's Cafe um, <laughs> when I visit for NatCon London. Yes, uh, yeah. yes, we'll have a, we'll, we, we can have a drink. Is there. the food That's any good? good? It's very nice. <laughs> very nice. I heartily recommend it. Yeah. For those who um, don't know, they're Unheard. It sits on my, this is all on the website. I don't think I'm doxing you guys. Mm. It's uh, it's it's the floor above what looks like a very nice restaurant in in London. It is a very nice restaurant. Yeah, um, and I'm on Twitter at Moving Circles. And the book is feminine feminism against progress. Feminism against progress. Regnery books. Uh, and you can purchase it anywhere books are sold. Uh, try not to buy it from Amazon. Um, <laughs> Mary, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
one of the things we like to do after we have on a guest with a book is get a copy of it signed for American Moments Library. And uh, if I told you some of the things that people have written inside uh, their book jackets uh, because they happen to be buddies of ours, it would make you blush and would get this podcast labeled explicit. I'll tell you what, you know, of these uh uh, nine books or so that are on our desk at all times. One of them has something that uh, truly can never uh, see the light of day. And I'll let you guess which author uh, uh, has decided to write something in there. But uh, Mary's uh, signature inside of our book, though uh, quite funny, is, is I think fit for uh, public consumption. And so I'll read it out to you guys. It is a, uh, a, a multiple choice question with three three options. And the question goes as, uh, the sexual revolution and its consequences have been, colon, uh, great for feminism, that's option A, uh, B, uh, disaster for the human race, and C, none of the above, ask ChatGPT for help, uh, signed Mary. And I think that's just wonderful and lovely. Again, be sure to buy her book. Uh, be sure to watch this show, not only on your podcast feeds, but also on YouTube. Be sure to rate and review this podcast. Uh, only five-star reviews, please. If you write an interesting comment, we'll be sure to read it on the show. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, hit the bell notification uh, icon for uh, getting this mailed straight to you every week. Be sure to sign up on our website, americanmoment.org slash join, where you can find a forum that will make sure that we meet with you and find ways to get you involved in American politics. Keep an eye out for all the programs we have live, and be sure to tune in next week here on Moment of Truth, a podcast that is now well over 100 episodes along for reasons that still escape me. Thank you guys for listening. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.